Hello and welcome back to The Killer Kind. If this is the first time you're listening to the podcast, I hope you hit the subscribe or follow button wherever you're listening. And I'm your host, Stephanie Miller, as always, and I cover pretty much any murder or disappearance case that I'm personally fascinated by or one that makes me angry that I need to sort of like let my feelings or frustrations out about. And I'd say we cover the lesser known cases out there on this podcast with some of the, mo- the more popular ones or widely known cases thrown in there from time to time. And the latter is one that we are going to be covering today. If you've seen the title, then you know we're covering the Lululemon murder. And if you're a true crime junkie, you've at least probably heard about this case, especially if you live in the U.S. Essentially, a vicious murder takes place inside a Lululemon store, which is a high-end workout clothing brand. On the surface, it appears like a possible robbery gone wrong or sexually motivated crime, but was it? Let's dive in and find out. This is the horrific murder of Jaina Murray. Saturday, March 12, 2011, in Bethesda, Maryland, was a beautiful spring-like day. Bethesda was a bustling Washington, D.C. suburb, and on a beautiful day like it was, the streets were going to be busy. People were going to be getting up to go shopping, visiting restaurants, and just enjoying themselves. However, that day would be scarred for many in this suburban area. That Saturday morning at around 8 a.m., the manager of a Lululemon Athletica went to open the shop as she usually did and immediately knew something was wrong. Rachel Ortley went to unlock the door and realized it was already unlocked. Now, this was very alarming because she knew the girls who closed the shop the night before would not have left it unlocked. This was Bethesda Row, a busy shopping area, the stores lining both sides of the street. You don't leave a store like this unlocked. And not only was the door unlocked, at first glance, it also looked like the store had been robbed. There was clothing on the floor and a mannequin was knocked over. So Rachel immediately was worried and didn't want to go any further inside. Now, this Lululemon shared the building with an Apple store, and at 8 a.m., there were several people standing outside. On this particular day, there was a new iPhone coming out, and people were standing in line to get this new phone early that morning. So Rachel gets the attention of a guy named Ryan who was standing in line for this new iPhone. And originally, she asked him if he, how long he had been there, had he seen anybody go inside, you know, kind of how long he'd been standing outside. Could he have seen or witnessed somebody coming in or out? Ryan said that he had been in line for about an hour and maybe even closer to two hours at this point. And he never saw anyone even approach the Lululemon, let alone come in or out. The prosecutor later stated that Rachel asked this guy to go inside the Lululemon for her and check it out while she called 911 to report a possible robbery. More than likely, they were going to find the store empty. Maybe one of the girls just forgot to lock the door back. Somebody would get in trouble or fired because of it, and all would be okay for the most part. However, these two would end up making a gruesome discovery. 
Rachel and Ryan make their way through the front doors of the Lululemon store, and they see some clothes on the floor, like I already mentioned. And then further back in the store they get, it gets worse. When they get to the cash registers, they notice that all of the registers are open and empty, definitely indicating a robbery. They go towards the dressing rooms and see that that area is just ransacked. There was shattered glass, consoles that held clothing were moved out of place, and items of clothing were just everywhere. But that's when they start noticing blood. And the blood sort of leads to the employee-only area in the back. Ryan later testified saying that he walked to the back hallway and started to open one of the doors. And that's when he noticed a puddle of blood. He was unable to open the door fully because there was a body blocking the door. In this back storage room, 30-year-old Jaina Murray was found dead in a puddle of her own blood. Not far from her in the employee bathroom was 28-year-old Brittany Norwood, who was found tied up, lying flat on her back. Her eyes were closed, but she did appear to still be breathing. Ryan said that he heard a slight moan coming from Brittany. He described it as a sound coming from someone who was injured. Ryan told Rachel to call 911 again. So she did. She called right away, requesting an ambulance and the police, saying that one of her girls was hurt. Not really sure of the exact situation at this point. When Montgomery County Police Officer Kristen Newth arrived, she found Rachel outside and she explained kind of what led to the discovery of her two employees in a blood-soaked storage room. The paramedics and another police officer ran to the aid of the surviving victim, Brittany Norwood, because just like Jaina, Brittany was surrounded by blood and had visible wounds on her body. More like cuts and bruises, but also more a more brutal wound found on her forehead. Now, Brittany was tied up, as I mentioned, her hands zip-tied and her feet were zip-tied as well. She appeared to not have a shirt on. However, she was wearing a sports bra. A Lululemon shirt was tied around her neck, one that appeared to have come from inside the store, meaning it was a brand new shirt. It wasn't one that she owned or that she had been wearing. It was around her neck, tied tightly, but not physically strangling her. She was wearing some leggings when she was found, but the crotch area had been cut or ripped open, indicating a sexual motive behind the attack. Now, let's get into the state of this room the girls were found in. First of all, there was blood everywhere. Blood spatter on the walls, a pool of blood at Jaina's body, and there were so many random things found on the floor And most of them appeared to be used as weapons, or at least had blood all over them. There was a fairly large rock that was found near Brittany's body, and it was believed that that was the weapon used to hit Brittany over the head, the worst of her injuries that she received. There was a Lululemon clothes hanger with blood on it. There were two bottles of Windex randomly, mostly empty and knocked over on the floor. There were a bunch of paper towels on the floor as well, soaked in blood. There was a small red toolbox that was open with most of the tools laid out on the floor, 
along with everything else, including a wrench, a hammer, and a couple of box cutters, all covered in blood. Now, the toolbox itself, along with the remaining tools left inside, actually belonged to the store. It was a toolbox used for minor repairs around the shop. Most stores kind of have something like this. Now, the toolbox was found laying on top of Jaina's body, kind of like it was just dropped on top of her as one final sign of disrespect is what it seems like. And when I first read this, it sounded to me like the killer or killers in this case hated these two women, or at least hated Jaina. I was thinking maybe this was a specific attack on Jaina, and Brittany was just there at the wrong time. But we'll come back to this situation later. So moving on. The crime scene is just a mess. There is literally blood everywhere in the back part of the store. There's even blood splatter, like I said, six feet up the wall near Jaina's body. This was a violent and vicious attack. And one of the first things investigators noticed that might be able to determine who did this was multiple bloody shoe prints found around the store. There was a shoe print the size of a U.S. women's size 5 or 6, and then a second shoe print that was a U.S. men's size 14, which are both very odd sizes. I mean, I guess the women's size 5 or 6 isn't abnormal, really, but in this situation, your initial thought could be, were they attacked by like a tiny woman and a very large man? It's just odd size shoe prints for this situation in particular. Now, it's possible that the woman's shoe prints could have been from Jaina or Brittany. That's certainly what police were speculating at first. The men's shoe prints were found all throughout the employee-only area of the store, but also led into the retail part as well. More curiously, they ended up leading to a sink in the back of the store, and the prints just kind of stopped there, meaning it was very apparent that the person wearing those shoes walked up to the sink, but there was no indication that they ever walked away from it, at least not with blood still on the bottom of the shoes. So did they rinse them off in the sink and then walk away, Or did they take them off completely and just carry them out? Just kind of hard to understand. Very confusing. Another trail of blood led them to the fire exit door in the very back of the store. And there was blood all over the handle and other parts of this exit door. However, when you opened the door, there was no blood found outside. So there was speculation that one of the girls maybe tried to escape and was caught after they reached the door. Also, this fire exit door had an alarm on it that would sound if it was opened. However, you could turn that alarm off by putting a key in the door. That would essentially turn the alarm off and allow the door to be opened without the alarm actually going off. So this kind of backs up the theory that It was one of the two women trying to escape or the killer or killers forced them to use their key for some reason or another. Because to me, if it's one of the two women, they should want the alarm to sound to alert people outside that need help. I mean, this was a Friday night in Bethesda. 
one of the investigators later stated that the streets would have been very busy that time of night. It was a beautiful, clear Friday night. So somebody would have been able to hear a loud alarm and they could have been rescued. But at the same time, I get it if they're trying to sneak out, but we'll circle back to who might have done this, what happened to these girls, and all of that. And we're going to get to the timeline and everything because, again, we have a surviving victim who will be able to talk. But let's get into the autopsy of Jaina Murray first. So Jaina's body was taken to the local coroner's office and an autopsy was performed. It was determined, and you'll see this number a lot, but there was at least 331 injuries to Jaina's body. I say at least because it was explained that some of the injuries were on top of the other, and there were likely many more that were just kind of layered on top of one another. Most of the injuries sustained were stab wounds, and there was a knife found on the scene as well, but also bruising and signs of being beaten, and also multiple self-defense wounds all around her hands and her arms. Now, it was determined that about 200 of those injuries were on her face and head. 200. I heard one, I heard someone else say that there's not a lot of surface area on the face and head. So the fact that the coroner could physically count 200 markings is crazy. And the most disturbing part was that there was not much skin left because of this amount of injuries to her face. There were also 13 fractures on her skull itself, plus part of the skull had even caved in. The remaining 131 injuries were found on her torso, arms, and chest. She had five different wound patterns on her body. It was believed to be the wrench, the hammer, the rope found tied around her neck, and a small Buddha statue that was found near her body with blood on it as well, plus the knife to stab her. Now, a similar Buddha statue was found near Brittany's body as well. Apparently, the Lululemon store had multiple statues like this around the store as decoration. The worst part of the coroner's report was that it was believed that Jaina was alive for almost all of these injuries. The coroner stated they believed it was the final 331 blow to the head that killed Jaina Murray. Of course, we hope that wasn't that she wasn't conscious for all of them, but she was at least alive, which is I feel like the one thing I think most people hope in isn't the case, you know, like maybe they didn't feel all of these injuries and hopefully she wasn't conscious and wasn't fully aware of all of these, and I really do hope that she wasn't, but she definitely did feel a lot of pain, which is horrible. Now, the good thing in this case seemed to be that there was a surviving victim that could hopefully shed some light as to what happened that night. It was apparent that Brittany Norwood also sustained some injuries, so police weren't sure when they might get a full story from Brittany or if they'd even get the chance to, because when police found her, like I said, there was blood everywhere. It was hard to tell just how injured Brittany was. However, Brittany was able to give police a story later that same day after she was treated for her wounds at the hospital. So 
she told the hospital staff that she was raped during her attack. So a rape kit was done and the injuries to her body were treated easily, just sort of cleaned up. Although I believe the injury to her head did require some stitches. However, she was obviously going to be okay. Just severely traumatized for sure. So let's get into Brittany's story. What happened to these poor women? So Brittany sat down with the investigators on the case and explained that the two women closed the store just like normal that night. She explained they always closed the store at 9 p.m. They did a check of the shop, closed all the registers, clocked out, and locked the doors and set the alarm at 9.45 p.m. Jaina got in her car and headed home, and Brittany was going to take the train home, as she sometimes did, so she started walking in that direction. However, she gets all the way there and realizes she doesn't have her Metro card. She realizes that she must have left it inside the store. Now, Jaina was actually the on-duty manager at the time, Rachel, who found the women being the official store manager. But basically, Jaina was in charge and had the keys to the store. So Brittany calls Jaina and asks if she could come back to let her in to look for this card. Jaina said she had actually left her laptop, so she needed to come back anyway. So yes, you know, absolutely no problem. So both Jaina and Brittany arrive back at the store to go inside the building at 10.05 p.m. Brittany admits they did not lock the door behind them because they were just going to run in really quickly and be right back out. Once inside, Brittany said she realized she couldn't find her Metro card anywhere and that's the only way she had to get home. So, Jaina, being the person she is, offered to give Brittany her Metro card since she drove her car that, to work that night and she didn't need it. And as this exchange was taking place, Brittany said two men in ski masks entered the store. And they immediately became violent. She said one of the men was about six foot tall and the other was about five foot five. She said that one of the men struck Jaina in the face and dragged her by her hair to the back of the store, which she believed the man started beating and began to sexually assault Jaina. Now, there were clumps of Jaina's hair found throughout the store, so sort of backing up this story of her being dragged around by her hair. Brittany said she was taken by the second assailant to the cash registers and asked to open them up so he could empty them out. I did read a report that there were also two safes in the store as well that were found open and empty. But Brittany said she was taken to the employee bathroom, also in the back of the store. This was where she was later found the next morning. She said her attacker tied her hands and her feet and began, quote, torturing her by slicing her with razor blades, hitting her, but not quite hard enough to kill her or anything like that. But like his goal was just to beat her up and essentially torture her. But she said that he cut a hole in her pants and she said she was also sexually assaulted. Once that was over, her assailant left her lying there on the floor for a little bit of time, but then came back with a Lululemon coat hanger and continued to sexually assault her with that. Now, Brittany claimed the entire time she was being tortured and assaulted, this guy was threatening her by saying he knew where she lived and he would come to her house. 
but then he was also using racial slurs. So hearing this by her attacker and the other man, plus some other things that had happened, she came to the conclusion that these were likely two white men. Brittany went on to say that although the two women stayed separated for the majority of the time, she could hear what was happening to Jaina and that she knew that she was fighting back against her attacker. And that's when both men decided to beat her, strangle her, and stab her to death. She said, I assumed she was just being tortured though, like me. But then she knew it was getting bad because at first she could hear Jaina screaming, but then her screams began to get fewer and farther between until she eventually no longer heard a sound from her beloved coworker. Brittany said that her attacker came back into the room and had started yelling at her and again started threatening her. And he, along with the other man, came in, picked Brittany up, took her into the room with Jaina and threw her on top of Jaina's dead body. She said the men told her that they would spare her life because she was more fun to have sex with. Not their words exactly, but I don't like to cuss on this podcast. <laughs> so they picked her up and physically threw her on top of her coworker. How sickening and disgusting. These men clearly had some hate in their heart. But Brittany said after they threw her on top of Jaina's body and told her that they would spare her life and how she, you know, should be lucky that she didn't end up like this one, that sort of thing, they pick her back up, take her into the employee bathroom, and they leave the store. Now, the entire time Brittany did struggle to tell her story, she was obviously traumatized by the entire thing, so it was just difficult to talk about. She cried the whole time and did have to stop multiple times just to be able to kind of catch her breath, and she was particularly traumatized by the amount of blood that she saw. She just kept saying there was so much blood, there was so much blood, and the entire time she kept blaming herself, which wasn't too surprising that she felt that way. I mean, survivor's guilt is a thing. She said, if I hadn't forgot my card, none of this would have happened. And Brittany also started asking how her friend was doing, making it seem like she didn't know that she had actually died, hoping that maybe she was still alive. But the person doing the interview said that they weren't sure they would find out and let her know. I'm not sure if that was true or if they were just trying to, you know, kind of keep her calm. But so at this point, police take this information from Brittany and they pretty much hit the ground running. They need to find out who attacked these two women on a busy street. They need to bring these two guys in before they hurt anyone else. Because of the severity of the crime, the residents in the city were panicked, rightfully so. And there was pretty heavy local media coverage on this. So investigators needed to work pretty fast. So that's what they do. They first obviously want to take a look at security cameras along the street or somewhere nearby to see if they can see the men walking into the store. Supposedly, there was only one business on the street that had a camera, but luckily it was the Apple store that was just right next door. And once they were able to pull that footage, they were able to see two men dressed all in black walking by the Apple store right around the time 
of the attack. So Detective Dimitri Rubin assigned the case decided to set his sights on these two men. So they released the security camera footage to the local news that night, hoping somebody would come forward identifying these two men. So all of this happened, like I said, pretty quickly. The women are found by Rachel at 8 a.m. Police arrive to the scene, start trying to put pieces together. Brittany is interviewed later that evening. The security footage is found by the Apple Store, which, side note, we'll get into the Apple Store employees because there were people there working that night at the same time the girls were attacked. But we'll come back to that. (laughs) Anyways, the footage was found and released, all in time for the 10 o'clock news. So the police were on it. Something like this just didn't happen in this area, so they knew they had to act fast, which I feel like is rare in some of our cases here on The Killer Kind. Just saying. So while they wait to hopefully get something out of releasing this footage, investigators decide to talk to employees at the surrounding businesses to see if they've seen the two men in the footage or to find out if they might have seen or heard something going on at the Lululemon store that night. And to their surprise, someone did hear something. An employee named Yana at the Apple store claimed to hear something at around 10 p.m. on that Friday night. She said she was doing her closing duties and started hearing loud screaming and banging for coming from somewhere. At first, she thought it was outside, maybe a rowdy group of people or something like that. But then she realized it was coming from next door at Lululemon. Again, these two, these two stores practically share a wall between the two. Kind of like a strip mall type situation to kind of help paint the picture for you. She said, It got to the point that the noises were so loud that it sounded like it could be happening inside their store, the Apple store. So at this time of night, there's only like two or three people working at the Apple store. So she alerts her store manager that was there at the time, Ricardo, and asks if he hears it. And he does. The two of them walk over to the wall where the sounds are coming from, and they both put their ears up against the wall. There is actually security footage that has since been released from inside the Apple store showing the two employees going up to the wall and leaning up to it to listen. Yana described the screams that she was hearing as high-pitched screams mixed with lower-pitched grunting and dragging noises as if something was being moved. Yana went on to confess that she could hear two female voices yelling, with one of them yelling, quote, talk to me, don't do this, talk to me, what's going on, with that same female voice eventually screaming, God help me, please help me. The Apple Store manager, Ricardo Rios, later testified in court saying he thought the noise was, quote, just drama and ended up banging his fist on the wall in order to get them to stop screaming and yelling. And it worked. The noises stopped. Now, there was obviously major backlash against these employees at the Apple Store. Why on earth? Did they not go next door to see what was going on at least? Or, better yet, call 911 to report it. They could have likely saved Jaina's life 
had they just done something. I mean, literally anything. But police are obviously alarmed by this, not really sure what to make of it. But really, at this point, all they're doing is trying to get eye or in this case, ear, witness statements, and they're wanting to establish a timeline of events or also anything to confirm Brittany's story and to see when the killers might have been there, when they left, that sort of a thing. So the Apple employees claim they heard the screaming at 10.15 p.m. Then when speaking to the Lululemon manager, Rachel, she said she spoke to Jaina prior to the attack attack that night after closing the store, but before the girls went back inside. Jaina had called Rachel to let her know that they had closed the store and were both headed home. Now, Rachel mentioned that Jaina had something to tell her as well. It was more to it than just closing the store, but we won't get into that yet. There's a lot of information in this case, and the police were on top of this investigation. So it was moving fast. But I promise you, there's more to that conversation that we'll get into. So Detective Reuven doesn't really have much to go on as far as his suspects go. So he decides to stake out the Lululemon store, thinking the killers would return to the scene. Again, if you've heard the podcast before, you know, killers go back to the crime every single time. Most of the time. Okay, not every single time. Nine times out of ten, the killer is returning to the scene of the crime. So, smart guy, Detective Reuben. So, he parks his patrol car a few stores down from Lululemon. And sure enough, his intuition was correct. It doesn't take long for two men to walk by the store, resembling the two men in the footage. So the detective stops the guys and holds up a picture asking if they know the two guys in the photo. And they openly admit that it was them in the picture. However, the two guys claim they work at a restaurant nearby and they will sometimes walk home together, passing this Lululemon store because they both live in the same direction. And... They wear all black because that is a part of their uniform. Detective Reuben is rightfully doubtful at first. However, he is able to confirm their alibi and is forced to clear his only suspects at this point. I didn't mention, but in the footage, it just shows the two men walking past the Apple store in the direction of Lululemon, but Due to the angle of the camera, you can't actually see if they enter the building or not. So, sadly, with their only two suspects, or their only suspect in general, ruled out, they're back to square one. But it doesn't take long to realize where to look next. Because while interviewing Rachel, police are reminded that Jaina drove her car to work that night. However, while at the crime scene, there was no sign of Jaina's car. So where was it? Investigators kind of gather at the police station and discuss Jaina's car, explaining it was a silver Pontiac G5. Side note, that's the car that I got when I was 16, except mine was white. And I freaking loved that thing. I would still drive it to this day. Anyways, I digress. <laughs> Luckily for police, Jaina's car would be fairly easy to track down because she still had a Texas license plate. She had previously lived in Texas recently before moving to the D.C. area. So 
if you find the silver Pontiac with a Texas license plate, it's going to be Dana's car. But as soon as the description of the car is given out to the group of guys, one of them said that he actually saw that exact car three blocks away from the Lululemon in a random parking lot a little after midnight on the night of the attack. He remembers specifically because of the Texas license plate but also because he remembers seeing the interior lights on and someone sitting in the passenger seat. So basically, they all jump up and rush to this parking lot, and to their surprise, Jana's car is still there. So the car is impounded, and they begin to wait for forensic testing to be done. And while they wait, they decide to appeal to the public once again, asking if anyone knows who might have done this. And they started getting calls about a homeless man named Keith that was known to sexually harass women and to be violent and frequently hang out on Bethesda Row where the store was. Plus, somebody called saying they specifically saw him in the area that night and he was seen with a white male. He was known to stay by himself, so when they were told he was seen with another man that night, they thought that there was hope in this being their guy. Now, since he was homeless, they didn't really know exactly where to find him, so it did take some time. But come to find out, he was actually in the hospital being treated for some injuries. Red flag, obviously, right off the bat. Investigators go in to see this guy, and his face is swollen and bruised, and he was covered in blood. Not a ton, but he did have blood on his shirt, his shoes, and his jeans. Again, red flags all over the place for this guy. Plus, since he was homeless, it could explain the shoe prints that stopped at the sink, if you remember Police thought whoever made those tracks likely took the bloody shoes off, and Keith was known to carry other clothes and shoes around with him in a bag, so they were starting to think in their head that it could be a homeless man that would kind of explain that part of the scene that was odd. However, he claims that he had just gotten into a fight earlier that day, and that's where the blood is from and why he has injuries to his hands and face. Police didn't want to believe him at first, but when they saw him, he was very disoriented, didn't really seem like the smartest guy on the planet, no offense to this guy. He was just your typical homeless man, honestly, and police really felt that whoever did this was one, very smart, two, pretty organized, and had a really thought about what they were doing during the attack and after. Three, Brittany said it was definitely two white men, but Keith was African American. So they really just had to rule Keith out as the killer, which sucked. But they still took his clothes and sent them off for forensic testing. But once again, investigators were back to square one. So, the investigators are scratching their heads at this point. Nothing is really making sense. All their leads bring them back to where they started. So, they basically regroup. It's only been a couple days, but they regroup. They lay out all the case files. They sit down and try to figure this thing out. They've put the time frame together. They run through Brittany's story again. 
And the more they think about it, all of this evidence found at the scene, the various weapons used, most, if not all, being from the Lululemon store itself, they start to realize that the story they got from Brittany and all the evidence found at the scene just aren't quite matching up. And that's where I'm going to leave you. (laughs) I know, I know, I'm sorry, but I had to. I've had a few requests for some part two episodes like I've done before. And when I saw this case on my list, I thought it might be a good two-parter. And then as I dug and dug into this case, there's just so much to unpack. There's so much information in such a short amount of time. It was perfect. But... It will not take me two weeks. I'll be back next Monday for part two. So be sure to subscribe if you can. Follow, get notified when we post the episode. I may, if I can, post early. Don't hold me to that. But I will do my best to get this out as soon as possible. If not, it will definitely be next Monday at midnight. So stay tuned. So come back to find out who did it. I would love to know if you already have some thoughts, if you already know what happened. Don't spoil it for anybody, but definitely give me some thoughts over on the podcast Instagram page for part one. Until next week, stay safe out there. Bye, guys.